Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is a student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on the issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. As a contribution to the forum section of the Fall 2021 print edition, the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs sat down with Margaret Quang, Executive Director of the Southern Poverty Law Center, to discuss the recent rising proliferation of white nationalist extremism. For decades, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented far-right groups and individuals that spout hateful rhetoric and commit discriminatory acts against uh, say racial minorities, religious groups, and other marginalized demographics. Since the advent of this documentation from the Southern Poverty Law Center, have you or the organization seen any um, fundamental or major changes in the prominence or behavior of these right-wing hate groups? A great question. So we actually see cycles happen over the decades. Um, typically, we see an increase in the number of hate groups and their activities during democratic big D administrations. <laughs> and then we see a reduction in some of that activity during Republican administrations. What was interesting is under the Trump administration, we actually saw the opposite and we saw a dramatic increase in the number of both groups and then activities taking place. Um, so for the four years of the Trump administration, we actually saw record numbers of hate groups on our list. Um, that was unusual, but I think it speaks to um, both the administration's willingness to engage with those groups directly, as well as um, actually their hiring of people out of those groups uh, to work in the White House and in the administration. So um, in that sense, there were a number of direct ties between this past administration and many of the groups that we've been tracking. I think one of the ties some people might mention is probably the capital riots. Um, what's interesting about the capital riots is that NPR actually reported that out of the first 140 rioters charged, around 20% were actually former or active duty service members. So do you think that these individuals are indicative of a larger problem of the military or are they just, you know, a few bad apples? And if they are reflecting a larger systemic problem, how do you think the government should address this issue? My colleague, Leisha Brooks, actually gave testimony last week to the House Armed Services Committee on exactly this topic. And what we believe is that there have always been elements of white supremacy and of extremism in our military. We actually went back to look, and the first time we wrote to the Department of Defense was in 1986. We sent a letter to Secretary Weinberger at that time, asking him to look at the activities of a group of enlisted men um, who were also participating in Ku Klux Klan activities. And so this is not a new problem. At the same time, it is not a pervasive problem. You know, we don't believe that there is pervasive extremism across the military. What we are concerned about and what we've recommended is that they have to look at their recruitment strategies. They have to look at 
the tone and tenor that is set by military leadership and by um, the rules and regulations of, of the armed forces. There's no question that as many of the wars that the US has been engaged in over the last two decades have continued to uh, have continued that we've seen um, some more willingness on the part of recruiters to have set lower standards for who they're recruiting into the military. And so we think we've seen more people who might've been screened out previously, who have been accepted because of the need for people to support these military efforts overseas. We also um, have been asking for quite a long time now that the military rename uh, there are 10 military bases named for Confederate generals located in the South. And that sends a message too. So we've been asking the military to change the names of those bases. It's long overdue that they make that change. And so that's some of the way that leadership can actually demonstrate that it's not gonna tolerate um, symbols of the Confederacy, symbols of slavery and Jim Crow, and that they are gonna pay more attention to screening potential candidates to join the military for their connections and activities with extremist groups. Many pundits have called for a, uh, a rather domestic step in the uh, 21st century war on terror directed against some um, white supremacists. However, at the same time, several activists and scholars have sharply opposed any new legislation that would expand the state's um, security and surveillance cap capacities that would likely violate First Amendment rights. How do you think the United States government should respond to this um, threat without at, without at the same time curtailing civil liberties and rights? It's a really important question. I'm glad you've asked. And there's no doubt that um, we are seeing a lot of calls for increased federal authority to prosecute and investigate these criminal activities. Actually, the Southern Poverty Law Center strongly opposes any new federal authorities. We believe that we actually have all the existing authority we need. There are ample numbers of laws on the books already that allow law enforcement agencies to investigate, to prosecute, and to put people who are committing crimes behind bars. We don't need new authorities or new powers. What we need is new commitment and new will. Um, in the past, it's not that law enforcement has been unaware of these activities. They simply haven't invested the resources or the time to investigate these kinds of groups and to make sure that they are being held accountable. If we have that commitment now from the federal government, I think all of the authorities needed already exist. And so really it's more about setting a political will than it is about needing some kind of new authority to listen in or to, to violate civil liberties the way that you've just referenced, Michael. In addition, prior to becoming the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center, you also served as the executive director of Amnesty International. So in your work outside of the United States, have you seen any community-led actions against far-right extremism that the United States could learn from? Oh, I appreciate that question, Claire. Thank you. So yes, uh, there's no question that extremism and particularly white nationalism is not unique to the United States. We have seen ample evidence from as far away as Australia and New Zealand, and then uh, across the ocean to Europe, 
um, and even in our neighbors in Canada. These are uh, groups that are equally globalized uh, to the rest of, the, of our society. These groups are meeting each other online. Um, one of the groups that we've been monitoring, the base, actually the lead of that group is based in Russia now. Um, so they are communicating regularly. They are fostering this kind of extremist ideology in multiple places around the world. And it is raising a lot of concerns, um, not only for law enforcement, which we were just talking about, but also for communities. I think there, there are few societies in the world that talk about race as much as we do here in the United States. Um, when I, during my time at Amnesty, my colleagues frequently uh, expressed with awe how much we talk about race in the United States, and it's not something that is talked about in many other places. But I think this recent activity and the recognition that there is a growing international relations approach to this, uh, to this problem is actually encouraging other societies to really start reconsidering their relationship with race. Um, because the, the, the extremist groups are going after the same populations everywhere they are. So whether that's people of African descent, people of Asian descent, um, people of the Jewish faith, people of the Muslim faith, these are groups that are consistently targeted in multiple places and who face um, many of the same discrimination and bias. So it's, a, it's an important conversation that's underway right now. And I, I hope we're gonna find ways to have a global response just as those groups have been organizing globally. We need to have a global response that is not restrained by borders or other things like that, but actually enables us to be much more nimble and targeted. Amidst this um, rise of right-wing extremism, we've also seen, especially very recently in the context of uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. Do you believe that there is a relation between the two? Absolutely. So I think uh, nobody is surprised by the rise in anti-Asian uh, violence and hate crimes. It is very much tied to the rhetoric and narrative adopted by the former president and by his administration in describing the causes the sources of the COVID pandemic. Um, and despite the efforts of many to encourage the White House and other uh, members of Congress to stop using that narrative and rhetoric, it has clearly fostered um, a very hateful um, message that has been adopted by many who embrace extremist ideology or racist ideology. So we're not surprised. Um, I'm still very saddened and very angry about what's happened over the last year. But I think there's a direct connection because it is the same administration that has uh, embraced many of these extremist groups and ideologies. The President Trump uh, called out extremist groups during his debate uh, with now President Biden. He refused to call the perpetrators of um, the disaster in Charlottesville in 2017, anything but good people. So even he's referenced now the January 6th event and talked about how the 
people raiding the Capitol building were hugging police officers. This narrative that he is continuing to foster is encouraging people across the country to buy into the big lie and to reject efforts at trying to decrease the animosity that we're seeing across different racial groups. So we have a lot of work to do. I'm very grateful that the Biden administration is taking these issues on as a priority. I think that's gonna be critically important, but it's gonna take us a while to really shift that narrative and to get people questioning some of the claims and the statements that that former administration put in place. And I think one statistic that's pretty startling is that of the 3,800 hate incidents reported against Asian Americans, almost 70% of the incidents were reported by women, according to Stop API Hate, an initiative to track hate crimes. So why do you think it is that women are so disproportionately targeted? I believe there's a few reasons for it. There is a very long-held stereotype in this country that demeans Asian women that um, places them as submissive or subservient. Um, it's also connected to a fetishization of Asian women that makes assumptions about their, um, their work or their uh, role in society. And so I'm not surprised. I think if you asked any Asian woman uh, what her experience has been in the United States. We've all, we've all seen the discriminatory, um, both reaction and intent, and we've all experienced the bias. So I am, as an Asian woman, not surprised at all uh, that we've seen that level of incidence. And I think it also reflects the terrible killings in Atlanta uh, two weeks ago that that the perpetrator of those killings was clearly targeting Asian women. Um, and I I'm, I'm, have been urging uh, Georgian authorities along with many other colleagues and allies across Georgia and the South to really investigate those crimes as hate crimes, both against women and against Asian women particularly, I think. It has opened up a long overdue conversation about why the stereotype of Asian women has persisted for so long. And you know, it actually goes back, the, um, one of the first immigration laws in the country restricting any group by its nationality was against Chinese. And Chinese women explicitly were excluded because they were all called prostitutes. They, they were assumed to be prostitutes coming to this country. So this is, a stereotype that goes back hundreds of years now. And it's something we have just got to eradicate from, from the public consciousness. Uh, do you think that this spike in anti-Asian violence reflects a broader international trend or is the United States more so of an outlier? I think that Asians have been experiencing discrimination in many, many parts of the world. Um, one thing that is really fascinating to me, I've always been able to find Chinese migrants really in almost any part of the world I've ever visited. And I've visited quite a few countries. Um, and I'm sure other Asian immigrants and migrants as well. So, so there, are, there are Asian migrants in probably every corner of the world. And 
um, when incidents like the COVID pandemic come out and you hear high profile leaders like former President Trump blaming Asians for the virus, I know that there have been incidents of discrimination, attack, um, and bias against Asians in other parts of the world. I don't know that other parts of the world have the same kind of historical legacy that we do here around the treatment of Asians and particularly Asian women in our history. Um, so I, you know, I think it probably looks somewhat different in different places, but certainly it's it's not unique to the United States. And also, what would you recommend activists and anti-hate groups to do moving forward? Do you think there's room for cross-cultural collaboration or say collaboration between different social justice movements? Oh, we're always stronger when we're collaborating. So for sure, <laughs> this is a moment where I've seen some incredible solidarity. Um, I've been really, really touched by efforts from the African-American community, the Latinx community, um, from our indigenous brothers and sisters who have reached out and expressed solidarity and sympathy and support to Asian Americans during this time. But also we have to recognize that none of us will be able to overcome oppression if it exists for other groups. So Asian Americans are not gonna be able to stop those terrible stereotypes and to stop discrimination and bias if we're not standing up in solidarity with black and brown communities across the country. So it is a call. It's a call to all of us to recognize that it is only by working together that we're going to be able to achieve our larger goals. And that can be hard. Uh, the system is frequently designed to prevent us from collaborating. I think um, the most urgent call right now is what just happened in Georgia. The efforts by the Republican leadership in the, in the legislature in Georgia to prevent voters of color, young voters, older voters, voters with disability from, from having access to the ballot box. That is something that affects all of us. And we're only going to be able to make change happen in Georgia and to keep the advances we saw in this past election if we actually work together. And if we make sure that we're all seen on the same side as fighting for justice and for voting rights. In regard to any of the, uh, the topics that we discussed over the course of this interview, do you have any last thoughts or recommendations? One thing I will say is I have been so deeply impressed and inspired by young people in the last several years, but particularly in the last year. COVID has been terrible for all of us. It has affected every aspect of life. And yet I see young people organizing in new ways, in inspired ways, and overcoming the challenges of the pandemic to come together, to protest, to organize, and to make demands that we can't leave this world in the state that it's in. We have to make change happen. So this is really a moment when I think I would encourage other older folks like me <laughs> to make sure that we're, we're not standing in the way. We should be stepping aside and following the leadership of young people. And I 
I just hope that we will continue to see the level of activism and engagement that we have seen over the last year continue because we desperately need it. Um, and I'm really excited to be following in the footsteps of so many young activists right now. This was 37th and the World. Thank you to Margaret Huang. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening. See you next time.